Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Oh, well, welcome to Mortification of Spin. Uh, my name is Carl Truman. I'm here with my usual co-hosts, Amy Bird and Todd Pruitt. And today we're interviewing uh, Michael Kruger. Uh, Mike's been on the program before. He's the president and the Samuel C. Patterson Professor of New Testament and Early Christianity at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte. Uh, but perhaps he's most famous for being the husband of Melissa. Uh, <laughs> great to have you with us, Mike. <laughs> Uh, thanks, guys. Great to be back and great to be known again as Melissa's husband. So. <laughs> <laughs> but we want to talk to you today, Mike, about uh, an excellent new book you've just produced, uh, uh, Christianity at the Crossroads, which is a study of the second century. And I have to say, I'm, you're a New Testament man looking towards the early church. I'm a reformationist who has to teach ancient Christianity. Uh, and the second century has always been a difficult century for me to to teach because it's been very, very hard to find a good, accessible book that lays out the kind of issues that I want the students to wrestle with uh, as they look at the rise of ancient Christianity. And this book really plugs that hole in the literature. So first, I want to say thanks very much for writing. Uh, and second, to ask you, what is it that interests you particularly? in the second century. It's a slightly unusual century in some ways to, to study. The first century, third and fourth get well covered. The second century has typically been something of a poor relation historically. What is it that you think is so interesting about this particular period in time? Yeah, I, I appreciate that, Carl, and, and thanks for the kind words on the book. And yeah, I wrote it trying to fill a gap, and I'm glad to hear that it's, it's being filled. My, my interest in the second century as a New Testament scholar is probably surprising to people. They probably think, well, should you just stick around in the first century and, and stay there? And that's certainly the main, of course, place most New Testament scholars stay. But of course, my interest is is not just the New Testament books themselves, but how they were received. Because a lot of my interest, as you know, is on the development of the New Testament canon and its reception within early Christianity. And once you start asking that question, then you leave the first century relatively quickly. Um, now you're talking about when the New Testament writings were, were used and read and received as canon. And so that takes you quickly into the second and the third. So, so one reason right out of the gate that I have an interest in second century is for my interest in canon. But there's others too, interest in the transmission of the text, interest in issues related to heresy and orthodoxy, uh, issues related to sort of the way tradition was preserved in the early church. All these things somehow have found a, an epicenter in the second century. And so I just think it's an overlooked century that needs more attention. And I'm, I'm, I was, was happy to try to at least fill some of that gap. It was a fascinating read, really. And, and one thing I wanted to point out as a non-academic is that, okay, you see this book and it's published IVP Academic. And it's an academic topic, maybe, but I would say it's written well for a popular audience, too. I mean, you write in a very teacherly fashion and it's very easy to read and extremely interesting. You kind of get off on page eight with just such a great hook. You say, to put it pointedly, in the period from the first Christian generations to the end of the second century, more important decisions were made for the whole of Christianity than were made from the end of the second century to the present day. I mean, that just reeled me in to read the rest of the book, and I thought maybe you could um, unpack that statement just a little bit for us. 
Yeah, well, actually, that statement captures the essence of, of the title, actually. Right. Christianity at the Crossroads is, is a title that, that I think does try to capture the essence of the book. And the, the essence of the book is that the things that were happening in the second century, the challenges that were faced, the obstacles that were overcome, the decisions that were made, the direction that was taken, all were fundamental and foundational for what, what Christianity would eventually be and become. So when you look at Christianity now, or even Christianity over the last 1,000, 1,500 years, the, it was the second century, I argue here, that so many transitions and crossroads were met and overcome. And so it, the church was really at this sort of vulnerable stage. I, I liken it in the book to sort of taking its first baby steps as a toddler. They're kind of out of the apostolic womb and now on their own trying to figure out how to make it in a very dangerous world. And I think we forget that. I think we think of the church now as so big and so established that we, that we forget there was a time when it wasn't, and it really was, at least from a human perspective, not clear whether it was going to make it. Obviously, from a divine perspective, we're mm-hmm. confident it was. But from a human perspective, it wasn't all clear they were going to make it. It was, it was, there were some dark times there. Michael, I wonder if you would illustrate that a little bit. Give us an example of one of those moments or one of those crossroads that describes what you're speaking of here. Well, I cover a lot of them in the book, obviously, but one I'll, I'll start with um, that I think is certainly you know pertinent and, and front and center in the book and relevant for the modern day is the, is the political, cultural challenges that the church faced uh, immediately upon uh, being born into the Greco-Roman world. When the church first came in, into being, if we could even sort of use that language in the first century, obviously we think a church predated that in, in many ways, but yeah. at least in the New Testament church coming into form in the, in the first century, it wasn't really noticed at first by the Greco-Roman world. It was sort of hiding under the umbrella of, of the bigger movement of Judaism. And yeah, Christians had their moments of interaction with Rome. You think of Nero and so on. But as a whole, it wasn't really to the second century that the Greco-Roman world started to take notice. And when they did, they weren't very happy with what they saw. And there was a lot of resistance. There was sort of what we would call legal or political resistance and persecution, there was tons of intellectual resistance from philosophers and thinkers that found Christianity to be not that sophisticated and intellectually wanting and, and, and problematic on all kinds of philosophical levels. And so there was a sense in which Christianity was kind of getting pounded on from all sides. And what would they do? How would they respond? How would they overcome that? So that, that was one transition that was incredibly important. And I think, obviously, key that, that they did in the way they did so that, that we could be where we are today. It's interesting, the, the analogies that are often drawn between the present day and the second century, particularly, I think, with what in the West is being perceived as a cultural marginalization of Christianity, considering its, its rather mainstream position that it's held now for, for many centuries. But what struck me in your book, Mike, was that there's far more to the second century in terms of the analogies with the present uh, you know, many young people, when you talk to them about the faith, the issue of canon comes up, for example, and canon something uh, they wrestle with, authority, the nature of truth. Would it be hyperbole to say that a knowledge of the second century is perhaps one of the most useful things that the church could have at this particular cultural moment? Well, yeah. I mean, if I if I said it that way, it would look like it was a just a shameless promotion of my book. <laughs> you can shamelessly promote yeah, your book. Shamelessly promote it. It. I, I would probably say that, that the second century would be very useful. How's that for yeah, yeah. The, the way the church navigates the moment we're in? And, and, and the way I say it in the book is, you know, the kind of questions that people were asking in the second century are, are the kind of questions our culture is asking now. Whereas 100 years ago, that wasn't really the case, at least in, in, in the United States or in the Western world. They weren't asking the kind of questions 100 years ago in the United States that they're asking in the second century. They're asking questions more like the fourth or fifth century. 
But in the second century, they're asking questions of, well, okay, so, you know, is there a God? How many are there? Uh, is there one God in the universe? Why should I think that your God's the right God? How do we know this God? Is there any sort of confidence we can have in the revelation of this God? These are very basic sort of foundational questions. Um, and so the, the Christians found themselves distinguishing their beliefs from the broader Greco-Roman polytheistic world. And a lot of the things that were going on in that world look, you know, very similar to the kind of things that were going on in our world. And so Christians had to say, well, there is just one God and you only worship that one God and he made everything and, and his son is the only way of salvation and so on. And so, yeah, the, the dialogue that we read in the second century is so relevant for today. And so even in my own reading, even though I'd read much of this before, I was struck again how applicable it was. So I think particularly of Tertullian's apology was so, so good and he just dissects and takes apart unbelief in his day in a way that you wouldn't really know it was written in the second century if you just read it aloud to someone now hmm. mike you mentioned tertullian just there this was a question i wanted to ask just as far as key figures that we need to continue to draw from you, you know carl mentioned earlier you know we can think of all kinds of you know key figures from the fourth and fifth centuries but from the second century who do we need to be continuing to, to pay attention to yeah well there's a lot fewer of them obviously right. um and this is part of the problem of course with trying to tell people that you need to go do your reading in the second century is just a lot fewer folks but let me just mention a few right. key players obviously the collection of the apostolic fathers is key this collection of writings even though it sounds like to the layman that this is the apostles you're reading the apostolic fathers obviously is a collection of post-apostolic writings that are our earliest Christian writings we have outside the New Testament. And that, that itself is a noteworthy fact. And so you get a, a vibe and a feel for the kind of things happening. And these, these are things, you know, everything from Ignatius to Polycarp to Papias um, to some anonymous works that we don't know who wrote them and so on. And then from there, you would look at someone like a Justin Martyr, who would be obviously a key player uh, within the early Christian movement based out of Rome. A towering figure in this time period is Irenaeus just a monumental influence and a very influential bishop who wrote extensively against Gnosticism and other writings. You mentioned Tertullian. I would tackle on Clement of Alexandria, who really is on the tail end of the second century, but still considered uh, a second century source. And so that's a, that's a little bit of the lay of the land. And, and, and they're just some, some fascinating figures that I think we have so much to learn from. Yeah. And in terms of heresy, uh, that the church was needed to confront at that time. Would Gnosticism probably be the, the, the key problem in the second century? Well, certainly be one of them, and arguably the most well-known. Um, the Gnostic crisis, if you can say it that way, was certainly a crossroads that, that we, I think, in the modern day really cannot wrap our minds around and appreciate. Mm -hmm. We have our uh, theological crises in the modern day. Don't get me wrong, I don't want to downplay them, but right. But the level of the crisis with Gnosticism was, was fundamentally a choice between what we now know as Christianity and something that was simply not Christianity at all. Yeah. Um, and, and this was a, a key thing. And so the Gnostics were very influential. There were many teachers that were persuasive. There were Gnostic churches popping up all over the place. So it was a serious challenge. And you could see, again, from a human perspective, it, it looked like the church might just go under. But uh, uh, again, um, the church prevailed. Uh, and this really is due to a large part to the, the apologists of the second century, which, you know, picked up the pen and, and started to write. And this was one of the things that made second century Christianity so interesting is that unlike any other century, they were the ones engaging with unbelief in a very, very profound way. Yeah. Um, hmm. One of the ways in which you kind of challenge, I, th I think, the reader is that you know, we always hear about early Christianity being such an oral culture due to the high rates of illiteracy. But you demonstrate how 
that really isn't the case. So um, how do orality and textuality relate in the second century? Yeah, this is a really important topic, I think, for people to get. And it's important on so many levels. Um, one is, is the misconception you mentioned, which is mm-hmm. in the last 50 years in New Testament studies, there's been this sense that Christianity was this oral culture. They were really concerned about oral tradition only, and that the whole idea of writing was sort of this after-the-fact thing, and that you know Christians weren't that interested in books. And I think that that is just fundamentally and profoundly mistaken. And so I argue here that early Christianity was what we would call a bookish culture. And by bookish, I mean not just that they had a Bible, um, Old Testament, and a, and a forming New Testament, but that they also wrote many other things. They were, at least a portion of the, the Christian world was very literate. They wrote, they corresponded, both on letters and other types of theological treatises. They wrote extensively. Uh, they wrote broadly. Uh, and they wrote in, in serious volume. Mm-hmm. And so, what was interesting about this in my own study that I hadn't really put together until I wrote this book is the, is the impact this had on their pagan critics. The pagan mm-hmm. critics didn't really know what to do with Christianity because when they looked at it, it didn't look like any religion they ever knew. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is it didn't look like Judaism to them because Christianity had no, had no sort of national identity, no, no ethnic distinction. So mm-hmm. it was transnational. So that didn't fit Judaism. And then beyond that, it didn't fit the Greco-Roman religions because Greco-Roman religions were not bookish. They did not use religious texts in their worship like Christians did. Mm-hmm. And so I think what you see in the second century is that they were trying to categorize Christianity. Is it a religion or is it a philosophy? And a lot of folks treated it more like a philosophy because it didn't seem to fit any of the religious parameters. I think that's very fascinating. I think that's very important for our identity yeah. actually as a, as a religion. And your section on early Christian book production was really fascinating. Uh, just how they developed a distinctive book and technology and distinctive textual identity um, yeah, so much so that, that you could see a document physically and know almost without even picking it up that it was a Christian book. Wow. Right. Uh, because of, by virtue of it being codex form. And yeah, that, that I actually learned a lot from that section. And, wow. and one of the things, I'm with Amy, I was so fascinated by that because growing up, you hear the, the skeptics, one of the things that they always say is that, well, look, you know, Christians didn't have anything written down until the fourth or fifth century anyway. And you really put the lie to that, which I, I found to be very helpful. Mm-hmm. And just talking about the, the transmission and circulation, right. like I'm sitting there picturing like, you know, Polycarp's publishing house. You want to talk yeah, about right, that a little right. bit? Yeah. Well, you know, this is interesting because, you know, Polycarp being an example of, of this and just numerous churches that we see interacting, they were, they were like a little beehive of productive <laughs> activity. I mean, they were writing letters, they were corresponding, they were passing things on, they were making copies. Mm-hmm. They're making copies for friends. There is evidence of sort of at least sort of proto-scriptoria in some of these places where not full scriptoriums yet, but there was at least some burgeoning sense of it. And so Christians were, were not only copying books, but apparently quite capable of copying yeah. books. And, and so they, that they could be read easily, too. I appreciated that part. Yes, they, they were writing for the average Joe, mm-hmm. uh, if you want to think of it that way, in the ancient world. They, they did not write <laughs> the for the elitist average. culture like the Greco-Roman world did. It was very much written for the average person. How influential uh, do you think Marcion is, Mike? You know, traditionally, he's seen as critical for the, you know, the formation of the canon and things like this. But you sort of raise some, some questions about that in, in your book. Yeah, so Marcion is, is a fascinating figure in his own right and, and such an interesting study because a lot of the heresies that we know about aren't necessarily wrapped around an individual as much as Marcionism was. That doesn't mean there weren't false teachers lurking there, but the, the Marcionite movement was particularly due to this one 
charismatic fellow who really had an impact in the church in Rome and beyond. And I think in many ways, Marcionism has been overestimated as it pertains to the canon. I don't think that Marcion was the first one to come up with a canon. And certainly I don't think that our canon is the result of a reaction to Marcion. It's been so often put forth ever since Harnack's thesis. Um, however, I do think the Marcionites had tremendous influence. And when I say Marcionites, I mean all the subsequent followers of Marcion that planted churches and had theology that was way off the mark. And so there was a, a strain within Christianity in the second century that saw the Old Testament as problematic, that saw the Old Testament as a false god behind it and, and not worthy of a Christian ascent. Mm. And that's a lesson for today, too, because I think when you look around today, there's strains of modern Christianity that are very Marcionite. Absolutely. Uh, and the way they critique the Old Testament, the way they treat the God of the Old Testament yeah. and the language of the Old Testament. And the church flat out said, no, that's not what we believe. And that, that's a, that was a key transition. That was a key crossroads. What did the worship look like then as far as where they worshiped? Um, you know, the times that even when we're reading in, in Paul, like uh, speaking to the churches, um, what did these churches look like and what types of people were assembling there? And what were the changes maybe throughout this particular century in the leadership uh, structure in the church? Yeah. So I, I devoted chapter three to the, to that question, Amy of worship. And um, I think that this was one of the most interesting chapters for me to write. And when I say that, I don't, I, I have a lot of fun writing the chapters on literacy and orality, but I've kind of written on some of that in other places that mm-hmm. this chapter was, was newer ground for me. And I found it to be really interesting. Mm-hmm. Part, part of what was interesting about it was, I discovered, and this isn't anything new, but I discovered that the worship of second century Christians really looks very much like it still does today. And I think there was something very comforting about that, mm. meaning uh, not that there aren't differences in certain ways, but that when you think about what the saints did when they gathered, it's the same basic things. They, they gathered together. They met together on a regular basis, usually on Sundays. They opened up the word. They had the ministry of the word and, and preaching uh, they prayed and sang hymns. Uh, they took the sacraments. I mean, it's the basic bread and butter yeah. of what we do now. And so the great continuity was very interesting. Now, there was nuances too and peculiarities and transitions. One of them, of course, I cover in chapter three was pertaining to church leadership. And well, how'd they run these churches and who was in charge? And that's a very complicated question. But the, the summation of it all is that I argue that by the beginning of the second century, there still seems to be a plurality of elders model. And by the end, there seems to be a mono-episcopate, basically a single bishop model. And I don't, tr- I don't try to answer how that transition happened mm-hmm. in the book. Uh, I just simply observed that it did. And I think that's interesting. Um, and it, it, there's probably all kinds of things we could hypothesize about what led to it, but it, it, it was a transition. Yeah. And you kind of talk about the difference between, you know, how we think of church now is like maybe hundreds of people um, gathering in a, building but you know if you're opc it's it <laughs> dozens of people yeah. perhaps. Yeah. Dozens dozens more bus. like second yes. century <laughs> um, if you're soft pedaling on a doctrine that is just how they met in houses and you know there there couldn't have been you know over 50 people at a large one yeah that's right i mean the, the household church phenomenon was a very real thing in the second century i mean if you quote unquote went to church in the second century, whatever that would have meant mm-hmm. in the in the vernacular of that time, it, you weren't going to a building. Yeah. Um, you were going to someone's home. Mm-hmm. And usually it was a, maybe a wealthy patron who had a big enough home to host a church. It could have been maybe a, a tenement where multiple people own multiple apartments. It could have been some Christians even met in, in things that would be the equivalent of a barn 
or rented space. So Christians were kind of making their way in a city that didn't have any real housing for them or any real buildings for them. And of course, as as I wrote that chapter, I thought this is kind of the analogy of this. It's kind of like modern day church plants. You know, they're they're meeting in like gymnasiums and cafeterias and uh, even to some extent people's homes. And there's this sort of raw, natural, and to some extent even refreshing dimension to that where it just seems wow, this, this isn't about the big show. It's about people gathering together to hear the word taught. And, and that's, that, was, that was an interesting part of the, of the, yeah. of the life of our It really made me think about the, the language in scripture of the church being called the household of God and how mm-hmm. um, they, they must have taken that kind of language then because here you are in this, this household, personal household yeah. with your yeah. brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, there was a real intimacy, I mm-hmm. think, is maybe the word to use for yeah. that. And people, you, there, there wasn't a sense in which you could show up the church anonymously and then kind of slip out the back before the last half, <laughs> right. you know, right. like so many people do now. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, there was no social pressure to go to church or going to church where you're risking your life. So, but then beyond that, there was a sense in which you really were intimately connected with the people because you're in someone's house. Yeah. Yeah. And yet there's this, as, as you kind of uh, indicated a little bit earlier, there, there's still a, a connectionalism. We see, you know, coming from the apostolic era, some, you know, recognized leaders. So they were still Presbyterians. I mean, I just want to make sure that everybody understands <laughs> that, right? I, I just don't want there to be any any misunderstanding. There were no congregational churches. These were Presbyterian churches. Did pastors yeah. in those days get these kind of deluxe sabbaticals where they were allowed <laughs> hey, to stop off? it? <laughs> sabbaticals are a very good idea. Sorry. All right, yeah, yeah. No, but did like just speaking practically too with for real instead of the joking around um <laughs> like elders at the time presbyters at the time um you know they might not have been just in that one household it might have been over like several of the households there in that city right yeah well this is this is part of the the complexity of it all is it mm-hmm. we, we think that church government was sort of you know mixed and and, and matched in various places in different ways so there, there doesn't seem to be a uniformity across christendom right, at this yeah. point mm-hmm. so some churches would have been ruled by a plurality of elders. Some would have been, by the end of the second century, at least ruled by a single bishop. But then what would happen is the church grew and needed to have multiple locations. Then you've got a situation where you have multiple elders over several different sites. Now what do you do? Um, and so there seems to be an indication that, that even when that happened, that, that it was still viewed as a singular church. So there was a church in Rome and there was a church in Corinth and there was a church in Antioch. And even though they had multiple congregations, meaning there was the church was still somehow viewed as a singularity. And what we, what we conclude is that there must have been a body of elders over, over all of them. And so there is a, there is a Presbyterian-esque kind of dimension to that, which it. is interesting. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> See, prove Todd's point. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. He That's loves right. that. So, um, yeah, yeah. What are you working on now, Mike? Well, what's interesting is uh, this is the first time, actually, I've, uh, I've been ever in my academic career without a, a book contract hanging over my head, wow. right. which is really nice, I got to say. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, I've been working on a couple academic pieces for chapters and books, a festrift, a couple of festrifts, and then some other things. And I'm getting back into the world of, of working on the uh, miniature codices again. Not that this is going to thrill anybody listening, I'm sure. <laughs> So you can cut this part out of the you know, one. Um, well, I was going to ask you if you were dealing with miniature exactly, codices. Exactly. So I'm glad you well, you know, you're talking about manuscripts, and you know when we study those, we get we dive deep in the weeds. And one of my areas of interest is miniature, the miniature codex, which is like the pocket Bible in early Christianity. And oh, okay, yeah. and um, and actually, I find it fascinating, at least how prevalent they were and what they were used for. And so I, I've got a piece coming out on that, and I've got a couple book projects in the hopper in my head, but nothing nothing underway yet. 
I, I would also just encourage folks to to check out your blog. Uh, Dr. Kruger has a wonderful blog. It's one of my favorites. It's called Cannon Fodder. And I encourage folks at our church to to go to his blog regularly. He's always writing just really helpful things, primarily with the layperson in mind. And um, uh, please just go to his blog. You'll always find interesting, helpful, edifying things on his blog. And if you're looking for a seminary to go to, check out Reformed Theological Seminary. Uh, they have a number of campuses. It's a It'd be a good fit. It would be a good fit. Yeah, it'd be a good fit for you if you're looking for, for seminary. And Michael Kruger is uh, president at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte. And it has been a, a pleasure to have him on. Uh, this is, is this, is this Michael's is second. second or third time with us? Is this the oh, second? second? Okay. Well, no. it feels like it, ten. It, it, it probably <laughs> feels like the tenth or something for Michael. Yeah. So, <laughs> but uh, Michael, thanks so much for for being with us, and and thank you for this latest book. And and Amy mentioned something earlier. Yes, it's IVP academic, but I would just repeat what Amy said earlier. Don't Not let that all. scare you yeah. off. The IVP um, bit or the yeah, academic? I, 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 <laughs> <laughs> don't don't let the the academic part scare you off. If you're interested at all in beefing up your knowledge of the development of the church and helping your confidence that the scriptures we have and the history we share as Christians are reliable things. Uh, Once again, uh, Michael Kruger has contributed something that helps us a great deal with that. And so please check out his book. In fact, if you want a free copy of his book, we're going to be giving away some copies. If you'll head on over to our website, mortificationofspin.org. Can I sign up too, Todd? uh, What's that? I know, we're really selling it. Yeah, I want to get a copy. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But uh, uh, head on over to that website. Enter to win a copy. It's called Christianity at the Crossroads. And uh, we're enthusiastic about the book, and uh, we appreciate its author. And Michael, thanks again. For thanks, guys. Always have a lot of fun. Look forward to doing it again. Great. Hey, uh, look forward to uh, uh, our next time together, everyone, on Mortification of Spin. And for Carl Truman and A.B. Bird, this is Todd Pruitt <laughs> signing off. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, the podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... I think Paul gets at this in Romans 1. There are things that we can observe in nature. Paul refers to homosexuality as unnatural. And so I think that we can appeal not only to what the Scripture says directly about homosexuality, but also what we observe in nature. And I think that this goes back also to us having a really good creational theology. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin.
I introduced the last one, so. Hey, it's Amy's turn it to is. introduce. It's Amy's turn. She's the one person. Giving. She's talking. Giving. Welcome Go ahead and start, Amy. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> one. <laughs> I'm turning up the thermostat if you keep this up. He's on a sugar high. <laughs> Uh. <laughs> you also probably are one of those ones when your children start to get in the car you pull forward oh yeah totally <laughs> yeah. that's speed <laughs> that's just that's just called parenting 